what is the singular concept, the one idea, really, that differentiates Christianity from all other world religions? It's actually very simple. It's grace. The concept of grace. As John Newton so eloquently penned, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Now the very idea that God's favor was never designed to be earned, but instead was always to be given, and is therefore designed for our enjoyment and never for our maintenance, is one of the most radical and in many ways revolutionary concepts ever presented to humanity. As Martin Luther once wrote, Christ is no Moses, no exactor, no giver of laws, but a giver of grace, Savior. He is infinite in mercy and goodness, freely and bountifully given to each of us. And yet, I will say, how tragic it is. How many of today's churches and subsequently Christians substitute this transforming gospel of God's amazing grace with this distorted and sometimes just twisted replacement gospel that only serves to bind and, and in doing so, stagnate the Christian experience. Now, up front, please understand that grace is such a radical idea. It has been misunderstood, and in the case of that, has had to, have, to be defended. The Apostle Paul, in fact. The first generation of Christians, Paul, was constantly defending God's amazing grace. It was just that crazy of an idea. In fact, defending grace was the entire purpose behind Paul's letter to the Galatian Christians. I really like the way that J. Vernon McGee sets up Paul's approach to this particular letter. This is what he writes in his commentary. He says, the epistle, again Galatians, contains no word of commendation, praise, or thanksgiving. There is no request for prayer, and there is no mention of their standing in Christ. No one with him is mentioned by name. The heart of Paul the Apostle is laid bare. There is a deep emotion and a strong feeling. This is his fighting epistle. He, is all, he, has, he has his war paint on. He has no toleration for legalism. Someone has said that Romans comes from the head of Paul, while Galatians comes from his heart. Galatians takes up controversially what Romans put systematically. Now, before we discuss this morning God's grace and how it's twisted, and more deeply why it ends up being twisted, I want to set things up this morning by working our way through the seven verses of Galatians chapter 1. And in these first few lines, the Apostle Paul is not only going to emphasize for us the importance of this idea of grace, period. Grace and grace alone. But Paul, in these verses, he's going to come out swinging. I mean, it really is a fighting epistle. He is on a war path. Anyone that would dare pervert the gospel of Christ Jesus, Paul has words for. Let's look at them. Let's read all seven. Galatians 1, Paul, 
introducing himself, an apostle. And then he's making it clear he's an apostle not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul begins his epistle, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And right from the jump, the apostle, who wasn't really known for you know, a, a lack of things to say, Paul wastes no time getting right to the issue. Grace. In the original language, the word grace, it means favor. It, it should also be noted that the word derives from the same Greek word that is translated as to rejoice. And the 156 times this word is used in the New Testament, grace is presented, it takes on a redemptive quality. Grace is describes an act whereby God avails His favor to those who, well, patently don't deserve it. Some have defined the biblical concept of grace as unmerited favor. Others have more creatively expressed its meaning through an acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. Both of them are pretty good definitions. Notice the particular order that Paul uses in his greeting. Grace, I mean, that's the emphasis, but it's followed up with what? And peace. It's not an accident that every time we see this particular coupling in the New Testament, grace and peace, the order is always the same. You see, if your salvation or your sanctification has any basis or is dependent at all on you, your merit, your goodness, your works, well, if, if your relationship with God is based on you and your performance, let me ask, is peace with God ever attainable? I mean, do you know you? Like, this is why the only way anyone can ever have peace, the peace of God, is to have peace with God, but that can only be given and embraced. Note what Paul says. He says, grace and peace, what? From, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the Apostle Paul, grace and peace are not something, by definition, that a man can provide, attain, or create for himself. Grace and the peace that comes from it are something that has to be given by God alone. They both originate, according to Paul here, in the Lord before then being extended to us, grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, the bestower of grace. Paul introduces us to him, Jesus Christ. Please note that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Jesus the Christ would be more accurately translated. But Paul here, he continues by immediately then explaining to us how it is that Jesus has both the authority and the ability to bestow both grace and then the peace that comes from it. 
Look at the text. What does he say? He says that Jesus gave himself for us. And it's critically important that you understand that no man can accept a Savior for sins unless he first is willing to acknowledge he sins. That's not rocket science. I mean, it's only logical that before there can be any remedy or proposed solution, there must first be the existence and then really the assumed recognition of there being a problem. You can't be saved if you're not willing to admit you need to be saved. You know, with this in mind, I have, I have found that there are many good people, many people that you know, that I know, who fail to accept Jesus as a Savior. Now, that doesn't mean they reject Jesus. No, instead, the people accept Jesus. They'll accept Jesus as a loving friend, a moral example, even a gracious God. But they refuse to receive Jesus as a Savior for sin for one reason. They have refused to see themselves for what they actually are, a sinner in need of salvation. And since this is the tragic case, there are many people today who have a religious experience revolving around Jesus, but who fail to subsequently encounter Jesus for who he actually is, a savior for sin. And they do this because they are unwilling to admit they've fallen short of the person that God wants them to be. You know, pride gets in the way. I'm reminded of the story, this story where Jesus is making his way to, to heal a man's daughter. And we're told that the crowds were thronging against him. I mean, if you've ever been to the Middle East, the, the roads are very narrow, especially in the city ways. And so Jesus and his entourage, his party, they're making their way through these tight, narrow city streets. The crowds are before him and behind him. I mean, people are shoulder to shoulder, bumping through, making their way, uh, navigating this back road, when a woman who had been suffering with an ailment for 12 years, comes up behind him and grabs the, the heel of his garment. And she's healed. And Jesus stops. And he says, he says, who touched me? And everyone around him is like, um, everyone. <laughs> everyone has touched you. But no, no, someone touched me. This was different. Which tells me, and, and you should take this into consideration, that you can be part of Jesus' crew, you can be around Jesus' people, you can be walking with, with the multitude. You can bump into Jesus without never experiencing his touch. You can be around it without ever being impacted by it. It's because of pride. You know, this, this might be a hard concept to accept, and I'll offend some. But it's true nonetheless. So here we like saying things that are true regardless of how you feel about them. Jesus might love you just the way that you are. But that doesn't mean he loves you the way that you are. Let me repeat that. Jesus might love you just the way that you are. I mean, he did. Christ died for us while we were still yet sinners, right? So Christ might love you just the way that you are. But that doesn't mean that he loves the way that you are. Like sadly, there are so many people in our culture who misinterpret Jesus' love for the person as being somehow his acceptance of a person's condition. Now, Jesus loves you. 
He loves you when you're broken and fallen and messed up and down in the gutter, right? But that doesn't mean he wants to leave you there. That doesn't mean he wants to leave you in a fallen state. That he wants to leave you broken and ripped off, messed up. You see, Jesus enters a person's life for really one reason. It's kind of the essence of the gospel message. Jesus enters a life to save you from who you were and then to make you into something you weren't. That's the whole idea. So much so, Paul says, that he was willing to give himself in order to deal with the root of your problem, you, the sinful state you were born in. Let me clarify something very, very quickly that many Christians get wrong. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Like, like the Bible is clear that the fundamental problem with you, with man, boils down to an internal heart condition, a fallen state that you were born into, which subsequently makes, interestingly enough, the tinkering of a person's behaviors to be frivolous and ineffective. You see, what man needs, because he has an internal problem, is not a set of religious codes aimed at refining his behavior. What man needs is a savior who's willing to completely atone for his sin, impart to him an alien righteousness, and then permanently transform him into something different, transforming the nature of who he is, filling you with his spirit. Like What you need, what you need, friend, more than anything else, is not things to do. It's to be made into something new. I just came up with that. That rhymed. I thought that was pretty good. You need your debt, your sin paid. It's called atonement. And you need your core problem addressed. It's called redemption. The redemption of the heart and the mind and the soul. And then you need a lasting remedy imparted to you by Jesus. You need the regeneration, a transformation of your core desires, which can only happen when you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul says Jesus gave himself for our sins. And most incredibly, we're told in John 3.16 that, that God, God the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That God the Father was the giver. But here, what do we find? That Jesus was a willing participant. That Jesus gave himself. God the Father gave him, but he was willing. He was able. And why would Jesus do this? Well, Paul provides us the answer. Look at it. He says he does this that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, in the Greek, this word that he might deliver, deliver us. I love this word. It means literally to pluck out or to rescue. In fact, a good translation would be that, that he wants to liberate us. <laughs> so, what does he want to liberate us from? Again, Paul answers the question. He says, this present evil age. Again, one of the misconceptions, and it's true that, that Jesus did die. He gave himself to save us from an eternal punishment. That salvation, that there is a component, a good component, a relevant component, that deals with our eternal life. But notice what Paul says here. Jesus is pressing, the pressing reason, the reason he gave himself is to liberate us, to save us 
to rescue us from what? Not something in eternity, but something present. He's giving to liberate us from this present evil age. You see, Jesus wants to transform and to liberate you from this fallen, wicked condition that dominates the world that we're in. Jesus literally saves us from the current wicked world. This is why Paul declares in verse 6, he says, I marvel. With that in mind, I marvel. Or literally, I'm, I'm just mind blown that you are turning away so soon from him. You know, with regards to grace, the pressing question we must ask, what was it that these Galatians were turning away from? And in context, because they were adopting this different gospel, which we'll get to in a moment, they were in actuality turning away from what? Not an idea, but a person. They were turning away from Jesus. In fact, the Greek word, the phrase here, turning away, it's much stronger in the original language. Paul's not saying like, hey, in doing these things that you're doing, adopting these teachings, and departing from this idea of grace, uh, it's not just that you're like, like you're leaving Jesus. Now, Paul says here that you're abandoning him. I mean, you can understand now why Paul's such a fighter. He's accusing the Galatian Christians of you guys are being turncoats. I'm charging you with desertion, deserting Jesus, the one who gave himself. You know, how does such a drastic thing like this happen to people who don't forget were Christians and at one point had come to the cross of Christ? And I think the answer is very, is very simple. It's very subtle. But I think that any time you or I, any time we start basing our relationship with Jesus on anything other than grace, period, we are deserting our Savior. Like Paul says that the Galatians were, were departing from Jesus and the saving power of His grace to what he now calls a different gospel, which then he clarifies the way that Paul typically does, wasn't really another one, before he then calls it a perversion, a perverted gospel. This word different, a different gospel, it means that it's not one of the same kind. Like, like what Paul is saying is that this isn't a different gospel in the sense that they were embracing something that was an adequate substitute. No, Paul's saying th this is not an effective alternative at all. It's a distortion. It's a perversion. You shouldn't do it. The true gospel gloriously bases, my friend, your favor with God and, importantly, the continuance of that favor solely upon grace, period. But these men, they were perverting grace by formulating and teaching a twisted, what you might call, anti-gospel. When, when you hear the word anti, it doesn't mean against. It, it's a replacement. An antichrist is a replacement Christ. An anti-gospel is, is, it's not the same gospel. It is something to replace the gospel message. I have found that there are really three ways that the grace of God ends up being distorted to create what I would call an anti-gospel. And before I, before I do this, I, I, I want to I I hedge at a caveat. I, I don't think it, a lot of the times this is done intentionally. Sometimes it is. We'll get to that. 
It's so subtle, gospel perversions. I'll give you an example. Yesterday I heard an old Baptist minister provide an invitation for anyone that was there to receive the gospel. And in, in the invitation, you know, the repeat after me in your mind thing, was a line where you were to promise. I don't even matter what follows. Like your salvation has nothing to do with your promises. Ever. Never. Absolutely. That's not, I was riding back with Creighton, and I was like, did you catch that? I mean, that, that was an invitation to receive. It wasn't the gospel. It's not based upon me making promises. It's about me accepting promises that he's made to me. So my point is that it happens. It's pervasive. It's all over the place. We have to safeguard, caution against, fight for. So how does these gospel distortions, how do they manifest? There's three. First, and again, the, the, the gospel is grace, period. So we're going to use uh, some punctuation to make some points, okay? There is what I would call the anti-gospel of grace, comma, and. Okay? So in your mind, the gospel is grace, period. There's nothing else that needs to come after it. The first distortion is grace, comma, and do these things. So anytime you ever hear someone, it's God's grace, and, boo, like, antennas should go up. Like, wait a second, I'm hearing something, grace, and, wait, no, it's grace and grace alone. It's grace, period. You just said grace and? Wait a second. Grace and do these things? Like the whole idea behind this first distortion is that you're saved and you're sanctified or you're made more like Jesus by grace. Yes, absolutely grace. And these things that you need to do. You know, sadly, there are people who see the true nature of the gospel as being too good to be true. And the reason is they're like, how can God's favor not require anything of me? I mean, that does sound too good to be true. That God's favor is designed to be received and not earned in any way. That the process of becoming like Christ occurs independent of my works or my disciplines or my efforts. Like, that sounds nuts, Zach. And it's because the idea of grace, period, ends up being an affront to a person's pride or their sense of self-sufficiency. While they'll accept God's grace, man, that sounds great, these people, in this first distortion, they establish for themselves religious codes by which they then seek to earn God's favor or at least prove that they were worthy of it. To accomplish this, they will substitute the gospel of grace, period, for what John Corson calls the three R's of religion. Their relationship with God, yes, it's based on grace and their obedience to rules, regulations to ensure obedience to those rules, and then rituals in order to demonstrate their piety, their devotion, how good they are. And yet, here's the truth. If the basis of your relationship with Jesus is grace and the good things that you do for God, your service, your religious works, then not only do you fail to understand what grace is all about, but what you're saying, and this is why it's a perversion, and why Paul comes out fighting, is you're saying that Jesus' death and resurrection were not enough. 
Because that's what grace period says. What Jesus did is enough. I don't have to add to that. But there's a second perversion. There is the gospel, the anti-gospel, of grace, comma, but don't do these things. So you got grace, comma, and do these things. You have grace, comma, but don't do these things. The idea is that you're saved by grace. And that's glorious. But then you become more like Christ by refraining from doing other things. You do these things, you refrain from these. And again, there are people that see the true nature of the gospel as being too good to be true, but in a different way. Yes, God's grace, His favor, it's designed to be initially received. But then these people, this second perversion, is that there are folks that fall into this burden of seeing God's now continued favor as something you have to maintain. Yes, they'll concede that there's nothing that I can do to save myself, but they'll see human involvement as an essential part of the process of becoming more like Jesus, of becoming more like Christ. Yes, your relationship with Jesus is based on his grace, but they believe, really, that that relationship can be deepened how? By your sacrifices, by things that you're willingly and sacrificially willing to give up for him. And sadly, what is produced from this particular outlook is nothing more than a wicked form of Christian legalism that establishes moral structure and church culture that demands from the people liberties to forgo and things to be sacrificed. Why? To be a better Christian. Though God's favor was given at the cross, these folks believe that God was more pleased, will be more pleased, with a person when they abstain from really often, a non-biblical list of do's and don'ts they've created for themselves. And again, when anyone says that they've been saved by grace, but are sanctified by anything other than His grace, you're distorting the nature of grace. Here's the truth. If the basis of your relationship with Jesus is grace, comma, but the things you're refraining from doing, the sacrifices that you are making, then not only do you fail to understand grace, but you're saying that Jesus' death and resurrection are not sufficient enough. Thirdly, there is the anti-gospel of, so we have grace, comma, and do these things. And grace, comma, but don't do these things. But then you have grace, comma, so I can do anything. Because you're saved and sanctified by grace, these people see no restriction on the things that you can do. You know, the irony is that these people do get something right. What they get right is they correctly understand the freeing nature of God's grace. I mean, it's true that you can, you can do anything as God's favor is provided to you independent of you. But, they distort grace in a different way than the previous two. You see, instead of grace doing what grace is designed to do, that is yielding naturally greater holiness, a life that's more like Jesus, grace gets twisted as a license for whatever goes. Like unmerited favor in place of sin 
plus then Jesus' complete forgiveness concerning sin, ends up being viewed as an unrestricted permit to sin. I like to call it the Romans 6-1 mentality. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I've heard people say that. Sadly, though, while it's true that if you're worried grace can become a license for sin, you have a misunderstanding of grace, it's equally, though, a reality that if you see grace as a license for you to just do what you want, to sin, you have a distorted gospel that isn't grace, period. You see, Christian, here's the truth. If the basis of your relationship with Jesus is grace, so I can do whatever I want, then you not only fail to understand grace, but you're making a mockery of the death and resurrection of Jesus. To those that would say, shall I sin that grace may abound? Paul answers in the next verse, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You don't get it. You know, if you truly grasp the true gospel, of grace, period. Grace and grace alone. Then you will understand that being saved and sanctified through God's unmerited favor, when you get it, you realize that Jesus transforms who you are, and in doing that, transforms what you want to do. Yeah, I can do whatever I want to do, but what I want to do is it's been changed by Jesus. You see, when your heart changes, when you enter into this love relationship with the Lord, it is a natural thing that your desires transform. You no longer live to please Jesus because you have to. That's what religion says. You have to live this way for Jesus to be pleased with you. (laughs) When you get grace, you understand that you, you can live to please Jesus, not because you have to, but because you want to, because you get to. I need to point out that while these first two gospel distortions, grace and and grace but, fosters a false perception of one standing before God, and, and really, therefore, their view of, of, of themselves, one of the other byproducts to these things, which is why Paul fights for it, like defends it, is gospel perversions, they warp how you see yourself, they warp how you view your relationship with the Lord, but they also warp how you interact with other people. (laughs) Have you ever noticed how legalistic Christians are just no fun? I'll go a step further. They're kind of just a drag to be around. And you know why they're a drag to be around? Legalistic Christians. It's because they are hyper aware of your shortcomings, but they're totally unaware of their own. And there's a reason for this. You see, when a person embraces this religious stance on moralism, when they adopt grace and do these things, or grace but don't do these things, when they establish and accept this structure as the basis on how they earn and then maintain God's favor, that person, this is what happens, they logically hold everyone they know to the same moral standards that they've created for themselves, and they judge everyone accordingly. You see, religion, things to do and things to refrain from doing in order to tether yourself to God. And that's what the word religion actually means. It means to tether. It provides the legalist a mechanism whereby they can maintain their own sense of moral superiority by highlighting, comparing, and condemning 
the failures of others. Oftentimes, when you ask someone, are you going to heaven? The retort will be, yeah. Why? Well, I'm a good person. Oh, you're a good person. And that's the reason that you, so, so not only are you a good person, but God sees you as a good person. So when you get to heaven because you're a good person, that's the basis of your, you being good. So that's the structure. Okay, you're a good person. Well, how do you know you're a good person? Well, I, uh, I do these things. You run through a list of all the good things you do. And then you also add to that list all the, the, the bad things you don't do. But how have you determined that that's a good list? By looking at the people around you that, that fail to do those lists. You see, ultimately, when someone says, I'm a good person, what they're actually saying is in their mind they have someone that isn't a good person their neighbor, and they're like, I'm good in comparison to them because I do these things that they don't do, and I refrain from doing all these things that they do do. That makes me good. The problem is is that you're using a warped standard for goodness because the Bible says none are good, no, not one. You see, if you really want a a good measurement to figure out your goodness, if that's going to be the basis of it all, it should actually be Jesus who was the only one that was good and righteous and pure and holy and sinless. And I don't care who you are, but if you look at the things that Jesus did and didn't do, if you just look at Jesus, there's no way you can be like, yeah, I'm good in comparison to him. You know, religious people, because of the way that this works, self-comparison, judgment, religious people have a pretty bad reputation in this world, don't they? I mean, let's be real. That's why I don't consider myself to be religious. I have a relationship with Jesus. Religion is for the birds, man. They have a reputation, right, of being mean, judgmental, unkind, spiteful, stuck up. It's been said that the worst thing about religion is religious people. I would add the worst thing about religious people is religion. Ann Graham Lotz, the daughter of Billy Graham, she said it's been religious people often within organized church who have been the most critical of and often hostile to my relationship with Jesus. Understand, if a person rejects religious legalism, the the, the grace and and grace but, perversions and instead they embrace this standing that their standing before God is only been provided and is only maintained through God's grace it's something given his grace alone grace period well then it's also true right that if that is the basis of your relationship with God your standing it is impossible for you to then judge anyone else Like, if the only reason I'm there is because of what he did, not what I, I can't take credit or judge anyone else. Like, we have an equal playing field. I'm not morally superior. Why? Because God's favor is both given and maintained independent of me. Think of it this way. If you're climbing a a moral ladder to God, 
it is entirely possible for you to judge the people below you. But, in contrast, we're not climbing a moral ladder. In contrast, it's very hard to be judgmental of anyone or even to have a sense of moral superiority when instead of a moral ladder, you find yourself at the foot of a cross. It's hard to feel real good about yourself when you're at, a foot, at the foot of the cross. Because religion leads to self-righteousness as opposed to the sole sufficiency of Jesus' righteousness. I'll echo what Pastor Joe Foch rightly said. He said, religion makes us an enemy of grace. You know, as I read this, these first few verses, I'm really struck by something that Paul says in his introduction. And I mentioned that, that, that we have to safeguard against these things because these perversions can slip in so subtly. You can hear it in your own language sometimes. Again, the pastor uh, in reference, he wasn't trying to present an, an anti-gospel. It's, it, it, it happens. But what I'm struck by is Paul does say something. He says that there are some who want, he says, to pervert the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying is that these distortions of grace sometimes don't happen on accident at all and are instead intentional, and that's very provocative. Like, you have to consider, why would someone who has first experienced grace, period, now want to pervert God's grace in any of these three ways? Like, why, why can't we just enjoy this thing? Well, all three are distortions in their own right. There is one commonality that provides, I think, half the answer. So there's two really reasons why people willingly pervert the gospel. They had the same root, two reasons. The first, it's you, me, self. You see, a central component of the true nature of grace is that it completely takes the power out of your hands. And people don't like that. Like the truth is that the grace and model, it's appealing. Why? Because it accepts grace, but it affords my involvement in procuring the favor of God. I get a role. And then you, the grace but model also has an appeal because it enables me a way to maintain a sense of superiority through my piety. It gives me a job, a role. And, and then the grace so model, it's appealing because it just allows you to remain in total control of whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. But in contrast, the true gospel of grace, period, it is deeply offensive to human nature. It's an insult to one's pride because it denigrates self. It says that self can have no role at all in any way. Fundamentally, grace alone declares that you're a sinner in need of being saved. If you could do anything, you wouldn't need to be saved. You get that, right? Like there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You accept that reality. And then once you've been saved, you realize there's no way you can take credit for it. But there's another reason that people willingly distort grace. And I think it's a little deeper. I'm convinced that for some there's a resistance to God's grace that it bubbles forth from this desire for fairness. You know, the idea of justice is more than just the act of, of being fair. Justice also includes the judgment of the guilty, the administering of necessary reparations, you know, to relevel the playing field. As such, the concept of justice, our longing for fairness, it's an idea that, yes, it transcends race, culture, ethnicities, religion. It strikes deep to the human spirit. Though this propensity for fairness 
does manifest in all kinds of ways. And you can see it. Geopolitical, domestic policies. Our longing to be treated fairly is also the foundation for a religious concept. A concept that permeates every aspect of our societal landscape. It's the idea of karma. You've heard the phrase. The idea really reached pop culture phenomenon by the beatniks of Greenwich Village in the 60s. Today, karma, you'll see it all over the mainstream America. One expert actually on social trends remarked, quote, people have embraced karma, here's why, because it helps explain why something good or bad happens. Buddha, according to his teachings, karma states that, quote, actions bring upon oneself inevitable results, good or bad, either in this life or in our future incarnation. In other words, in the end, this idea of karma, it ensures something we all really want, that life in the end is fair. Everyone will get what they deserve, whether in this life or another. Regardless of the moment, good deeds will always be rewarded and bad ones punished. But that, my friend, is what makes the cross so offensive and really a stumbling block. And it's why people struggle to accept this idea of grace, period. You see, not only does the cross completely contradict the concept of karma. Why? Jesus in no way deserved anything he experienced. He was sinless. But it violates our sense for fairness. The idea of grace, that God would grant his favor to you indiscriminately and independently of your involvement, it's resisted because it often doesn't come across as being equitable. Like, isn't it true at some point and be honest, like even the legalist in all of us kind of cringes at the idea that someone who has lived a life of sin and wickedness can come to Christ on their deathbed and immediately receive the identical status in heaven that you possess as a child of God and co-heir of all the promises of the Father. Wait, that doesn't seem fair, man. I spent my whole life doing what? Well, I've spent my whole life doing these things. Well, that doesn't matter. You spent your whole life enjoying the same thing he experienced at the end. It has nothing to do with you. You know, it's true. The fairness of grace is evident. When one understands that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's evident in the fact that there is no fundamental fundamental difference between all people like humanity's really it's in two categories there is jesus and everyone else like that's the category jesus is good and then we we're all here not so good there's jesus and there's the rest of us but i will say this and let's just rip the band-aid off grace isn't designed to be fair and ultimately, you have to kind of ask yourself of an important question. And please do this for a moment. I want you to think about something real quick. Do you want God to be fair with you? <laughs> or do you want your interactions with God to be maybe based on everything you don't deserve? So if your options are what I deserve or what I don't deserve, like which one sounds good? Would you prefer God to handle you and make a decision 
through the prism of his love and goodness or your goodness and deservingness? See, Paul's enraged that these Galatian believers were deliberately leaving the radical nature of grace. They were exchanging it for distortions. But the reason that he was so angry and what made all of this so dangerous is that Paul rightly understood, and we'll return to an idea, that adopting this approach, why was this so dangerous? It wasn't an idea or a concept. They were departing from Jesus, a person. Like, Paul fights for this. Why? Because if you study Paul's life, what changed it? It was the moment he experienced God's grace through a revelation of Jesus. He's on the way to Damascus to arrest and murder Christians, and Jesus shows up. And if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, I am toast. And what happens? Jesus changes his life. It wasn't a concept that changed Paul. It was a relationship. You know, when we talk about grace, grace period, it's so easy to slip into platitudes that we fail to fully grasp what's being articulated. Understand that while God sent Jesus to atone for our sins on the cross, His grace, the mechanism that now affords each of us an opportunity to what? To have a relationship with Jesus. That's the whole idea. God saved us from our sins for what purpose? So we could have a relationship with Him. Grace, this idea, allows for the relationship. Just consider this. And we're getting close. Like, how does a person receive God's grace? It's like, this sounds great. How do I receive it? Well, enter into a relationship with Jesus. Now, how does a person then grow in God's grace? Well, spend time with Jesus and watch that relationship deepen. Well, then how am I transformed by God's grace? Well, as you're spending time with Jesus and that relationship is deepening, something naturally happens. You become like the people you hang out with. And so in turn, in process, your desires, your impact, behaviors, these things change. You see, in regards to Paul, it had been God's grace alone that afforded him the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus, and it was one that freed him. It freed him from a former life in religion. It liberated him from the guilt of really terrible mistakes he had made in his past. And it filled his life moving forward with meaning and purpose. And it can do the same for you today. You know, the sad thing. There are some of you listening to this message. Either in this room or online. Or maybe even through a recording. That have never experienced the power of grace. And here's why. While you've known about grace, you've never known grace. Paul was forever changed when? The moment he met Jesus. Grace. And then his life changed every day moving forward as he walked with Jesus. Grace. It's why he fought so hard to defend it grace. It's such a revolutionary concept because it provides you a way to approach God that isn't based on your ableness or your fairness, but rather His goodness. You see, grace is much more than an idea you can know. It is a relationship with Jesus, a Savior you get to experience.
the power of God's grace, the peace that manifests as a result can only be discovered as you meet and get to know the person of Jesus. So I ask and I close with the question. Do you want God to be fair with you? Or would you prefer to sit back and just bask and enjoy His grace, period? So Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we get to know Your Son. That's what saves us. That's what changes us. That's why it's an amazing grace. 